0: Family, my title for us this morning is simply Hope in the End. Hope in the End. This is obviously taken from Amos chapter 9. This is the last chapter of the prophet Amos, the book that we have spent a number of weeks in. So let me introduce our final message from the book of Amos. By reteaching a number of principles that we've covered over the last few months. Chris is going to put up some points that are going to come up on the screen for your help. First, there is a covenant. First, there is a covenant. This is established in Exodus chapter 24 and clearly defined later in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Where verses 1 through 14 teach us blessings for obedience but verses 15 and following teach cursing for, guess what, disobedience. That chapter paints a vivid picture of what Amos is witnessing himself, a people on the receiving end of judgment because they have broken the covenant with God and therefore are in a position of judgment. So when God spoke his word to a Hebrew man, woman, or child in, say, Samaria in 742 B.C., it may have application for us, it may have meaning for us, but it doesn't have any application or meaning until you and I understand, get this, what it was originally intended to mean to its original audience by its original author. So we're learning about a people group that has a relationship with God in a unique covenant. It would be unfair for us to grab a prophetic word from Amos and go, this is the United States of America. Now, there's some applications there. Of course, we can always glean lessons from the word of God, but the context is not the United States of America or any other country for that matter. It is God speaking to his covenant people through the prophet Amos because they have broken the covenant. So that is our first and foremost responsibility. What did the text originally mean to the original audience from its original author? That leads us to the second point, which is this. There's a covenant mediator. So we've got a covenant established in Exodus 24, taught about in Deuteronomy 28, It has been broken, in walks a covenant mediator. You know what a mediator is. A mediator is someone who sits down between two parties to mediate a conversation so that an agreement can be reached, right? Well, that's exactly what a prophet is. A prophet is a covenant mediator. It's just another word for prophet. In this particular case, Amos is the prophet. Amos is the covenant mediator. And he's delivering God's word to God's people. He's working on behalf of the Lord and speaking to the people and relaying the message that he has for them. Why? Because God has a covenant with his people and they have broken it. And a covenant mediator, that is a prophet, has been sent to preach conviction and judgment to those people who have broken so that there will be repentance. And if there isn't, then there will be judgment. Finally, there is a covenant God. So we have a covenant, a covenant mediator, and finally a covenant God. What we've learned from Amos is that he's loving holy, just, merciful, and unrelenting. It's hard to wrap our brain around all those attributes, but all of them are possessed by God. All of these can simultaneously be true and uncompromising because, say amen if you're listening, God is not tainted by sin. So you and I fall short in the qualities and characteristics that sometimes we are wonderful in on Monday and then we're terrible in them on Tuesday, but God doesn't have such inconsistencies in his personhood because God is perfect. So he can judge perfectly, and he can be merciful perfectly. He can execute justice perfectly, and he can be forgiving perfectly. He always knows how to do it, when to do it, and with whom to do it, because our God, our covenant God, is a perfect God. And so we find ourselves at the conclusion of Amos' book, Amos chapter 9. I have two simple points for you this morning, the first of which is destruction, found in verses 1 through 10, and the second is restoration, verses 11 through through 14. So if you're ready, say amen. Amen. Looking again at our text, it says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the capital until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. This is kind of a large pill to swallow, isn't it? Not one of them will flee away, and not one of them will escape. If they dig to Sheol, From there shall my hand take them. Sheol is kind of another word for the grave, the depths. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, one of the most famous mountain peaks in Israel, if they hide themselves on Mount Carmel, I'll go get them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, I will send a serpent to bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. In the beginning of the chapter, the tune does not change from that which has been established already in the previous eight chapters of the prophet Amos. If you've been with us for any length of time through the prophet Amos, you know that God is not playing games. His people who have established a covenant with with him have broken it. They have been unfaithful, and after numerous attempts on God's part through his prophets to invite them toward repentance and the reception of forgiveness, they have denied it, they have rejected it, and as a result, we are at the point of judgment. It's a difficult text to read, but this is the reality for anyone who tells God, I don't need you, and I know better. It has been judgment and destruction up to this point, and it will continue to be judgment and destruction until the Lord's will is fulfilled. Perhaps this can be seen in the first few verses where the Lord is seen standing beside the altar, striking down the cities and striking down the strongholds. That word strongholds, we've already seen a couple of times through the prophet Amos. Let me tell you a story. As you probably recall at this point from our previous lessons, at this point in history, the nation of Israel is divided. In 931 BC, after the death of King Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken by a man named Jeroboam. This would be Jeroboam first. Interestingly enough, the king during Amos' prophecy is also named Jeroboam. Not the same Jeroboam. This is 200 years later but stay with me here. In that time when the kingdom was divided and the king of the northern kingdom was Jeroboam, God sent a prophet to that Jeroboam because he was leading the people away from God and into idolatry and into paganism. He even operated outside of the office of king and operated in the office of priest which he was not permitted to do. When this man of God, this prophet who was sent by God, arrived to preach the word to Jeroboam, to deliver the message that God had for him, this is the scene. It is found in First Kings chapter 13. It says, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah, that's the south, by the word of the Lord to Bethel, and Jeroboam was standing by the altar now 200 years later amos is dealing with a different jeroboam same name but different guy 200 years later and yet when when god gives a vision the fifth of five visions to amos the vision similar to first kings chapter 13 That Amos gets is of an altar, but it's not the king next to the altar this time. It's not Jeroboam next to the altar this time. Who is beside the altar? The Lord is beside the altar. Now, you might be saying, well, you, you're, you're bringing in a lot of different things. I don't think so. I think that this, there's a play historically here that's taking place. And God is saying, the way that it was is not the way that it shall be. When the word of the Lord was sent by a prophet to the first Jeroboam, it was Jeroboam beside the altar. But this time, with this Jeroboam, I'm beside the altar. The end has come. You see, sometimes the Lord stands in the place of people we typically look up to, we rely on, and we trust. In this case, the Lord is standing near the altar, but the sacrifice that's going to be made is going to be the sacrifice of his people. We see that in the first following verses. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. There's a few things that we can glean from the verses in the first half of Amos chapter 9. Two things in particular that I want to demonstrate to you. The first of which is this. God sees all. Say that with me. God sees all. Verses 2 through 4. Again, if they, that is his people, this is God speaking, if my people dig into the graves... There, my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, as it were, I'll bring them down. If they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, there I will search them out and take them. If they hide in the side of the bottom of the sea, I will send a serpent, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the clincher is in verse four. Look at it with your eyes if you. he says, "I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good." Listen, say Amen, if you're listening. There's nowhere that we can go to escape the eyes of the Lord. There's nowhere we can go to escape the eyes of the Lord. That's an application that we can get from this. This is what God is saying to his people, right? That doesn't, I don't care what you do. I don't care where you go. I see you, and my eyes fixed on you, and not for good. I'm bringing judgment, and it doesn't matter where you go. It will be executed. You see, his knowledge is perfect. His reach is beyond measure. His presence is everywhere. It reminds me of Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. In Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit, and where can I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nowhere. There's nowhere you can go to escape the Lord. You remember the story of Jonah? I know he wants me to go east. I'll go west. It doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way because God, I'm going to say this clearly, simply, God always gets what he wants. You think you're strong, and you think you're wise, and you think you're crafty, but you're not. When it comes to the creation versus the creator, the creator will always get his way. We are not going to get to the end of time, and God is just rubbing his head and wringing out his hands going, oh, if I could have just gotten one more, no. When he executes his justice, he will be glorified. And when he executes his redemption, he will be glorified. God will receive his glory. And when he says, there's nowhere you can go that I can't reach and get you and do what I want to do, he is saying, it's not about your will, it's about mine. I can see you, says the Lord. Even as adults, we seem to be playing children's games, don't we? Where we cover our eyes, so to speak, and say, You can't see me. You can't see me. But God sees all. The second thing I want you to glean from this first part of chapter 9 is that God not only sees all, but read it with me. God rules all. This is that sovereignty I was talking about. Look at what it says in verse 5. The Lord God of hosts we can kind of take the idea of hosts and say armies. It's usually a reference to the presence of all of the armies of the angels that are under his command. The Lord God, and that phrase there is a reference to his sovereignty when they put those words together, Lord God. The sovereign God of armies. That's an intimidating phraseology, isn't it? He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. He builds up the chambers into heaven, they fall, or excuse me, and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea, pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is just a descript way of saying God, the creator, is in control of all things. In the world, he rules all. Even goes on further in the next couple of verses. Verse eight, a seven and eight. He rules over not just the foreign nations like the Cushites or the Egyptians or the Philistines, but over everyone. Especially in the nation of his own people. God is sovereign and rules over everyone. Sometimes we can do that, right? We love God's sovereignty when it comes to how he executes such things on them. We say, amen. They got what was coming to them. But the truth is, by grace are you saved, and this is not of yourselves. (laughs) Amen? It is a gift of God. So the salvation that we have in Christ, and hopefully everyone in here is in Christ, and everyone who is listening is in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are still sinners, but we're saved by grace. So when someone is judged, we should not say, yeah, serves you, serves you right, but I hope you repent. And I hope that you receive Christ. Why? Because God rules Overall, Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And this is the case. And here, God is saying that his people are no different than those pagan groups. He will judge them, and he will judge his people, because they're guilty of sin too doesn't matter if they are foreigners or not god always executes judgment on sin because he rules over all but destruction church is not the concluding remark in the prophecy of amos and isn't that awesome isn't it great that after 8 exhausting, dehydrating, emotionally challenging, spiritually convicting chapters, we end with a restoration. Hope in the end. This is our second point, verses 11 through 15. I'm going to read them quickly out loud, and you can look at them with your eyes so that we can have a framework of where we're going. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant, focus on that word, remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, etc., etc. Jumping down to um, verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Jumping down to verse 15, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land, and I will... That I have given them, says the Lord your God. The word has been hot and heavy, but beautifully, unexpectedly, welcomingly, there is a change in tone. Like the first sight of sun after a terrible storm or good news when all you're expecting is bad so God's word comes to his people in the last part of the ninth chapter of Amos and as a final thought of his book. Church, before we get into a breakdown of what's being said here in this text, the last section of Amos 9, let me say this. With God, there is always a possibility of tomorrow. Some of you need to remember that. You are in a place, a low season, a dry spell. You're dehydrated spiritually. You are low emotionally, but you need to remember what the Word of God says. There will always be a tomorrow. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 say, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They, that is his steadfast love and his mercy, they are new every morning. And great is his faithfulness. Church, tomorrow God's mercy will be new. Say amen. Tomorrow his mercy will be new. You may feel like you have exhausted it. You may feel like you have exhausted it. But Paul said, where your sin abounds, his grace abounds much more. In other words, you can't outsend the grace of God, but you shouldn't try either. And don't, don't, go, don't go getting risky. You know what I mean? God's going to catch me. God's gonna, no, your mentality needs to be such that you hate sin because your Father is holy. Don't miss this Wednesday, by the way. The topic is holiness. Your father is holy, and he says, because I am holy, I want you to be holy, he says. My people should bear about in themselves the family resemblance, and the family resemblance is what? Holiness. There's no such thing as a Christian who loves sin. No such thing. If you are a Christian and you sin, and you are, you should hate it. You should hate sin because sin is antithetical to the character of your father. Your father is holy and he's called you to be holy. Now, you want to know more about this idea of holiness? I'm recommending you come Wednesday. But for the point of our message, this, did I say come Wednesday? Watch Wednesday. But for the point of our message this morning, I want to share with you a text that comes from the prophet Ezekiel. So if you want to make a note, you can jot it down in your notes. I have it here on the screen. It's a lengthy passage, so I put it up because I want you to read. And this is from the 18th chapter of Ezekiel. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. And God says, You say the way of the Lord is not fair. But hear me now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that aren't just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he's going to die for it, man. It's a little bit of my translation. And for the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he saves his life, man. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just Is it not your ways that are not just? And then God says at the end of the chapter, chapter 18 of Ezekiel, verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. (sighs) How incredible is that? This is a picture, I wanted to share this with you because we don't get it in Amos, but, but I want you to see it's not a different God in Ezekiel than it is in Amos. What, what he's saying in Amos is that the sword is coming upon you, and you're all going to die a death of judgment because of your sin. I'm removing my protection, and I'm executing justice on your unrighteousness. And we go, man, God is harsh. But we put, turn over to Ezekiel 18, and God says, do you think I like this? Do you think I'm kicking my heels? When judgment comes upon my people, the answer to that is, of course, no. I would rather you turn and live. Here's another word for turn, repent. That's what the word repent means. It means you're going one direction, and you go, oh, my gosh, I have, I have totally mucked this whole thing up. I have been thinking the wrong way. I've been acting the wrong way. And I have come to the realization that I am wrong, and God is Right. And so you turn, that's the word, turn and go back the other direction, the direction that God has called you to. That's what repentance means. We, we add to these words a lot of religious baggage. They're not that complicated. They're really practical. So is God executing justice and judgment on his people? The answer is emphatically and unquestionably yes. But is he kicking his heels about it? From the word of Ezekiel, I think we can comfortably say no. But he will do what is righteous, because God is perfect. And he does not allow sin to go unpunished, not even in those of us who are forgiven, because our sin has been punished in Christ. How is this established? Well, in our text... There is a means of redemption. How is this restoration going to take place? There is a means of redemption. Let me share a few points with you. First, restoration. Getting back to our text, verses eleven and following. You okay? Are we are we together? Okay. Our restoration begins with Messiah. Our restoration begins with the Messiah. Look at verse eleven. In that day, I will raise up, here's a phrase I need you to focus on, the booth of David. That is fallen and repair its breaches. Church, this is the source of all redemption and all hope. It is the Messiah, God's anointed Savior. It says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. You see, the relevance of this reference comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises King David that the Savior shall come through his line. The anointed Savior will come through the line of David. But we've gotten to a point where the kings are no longer Davidic the booth or the tent of that family name has fallen. And God tells his people, in that day, I'm going to rebuild the tent. I'm going to reconnect the tent. And the king, the savior, the Messiah, the one through whom restoration and redemption will come, will appear. Wouldn't you know... When Matthew begins his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This book is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of guess who? David. You see, if you cannot trace your lineage to King David, you're not Messiah. I don't care who you are. No one who has walked on the face of this earth can do what Christ has done or can prove through the biblical accounts of his inerrant word that he was indeed the son of David and the son of God. Buddha can't, Confucius can't, Joseph Smith can't, Tom Cruise can't. Only Jesus can. Now, if you want to say, but I don't believe it, then that's your prerogative. You are entitled to execute your will just like I am. But you have to do battle with the evidence that is provided for you, just like I have to do battle with the evidence that is provided for me. And if you choose, in this post-modern era of flexibility and truth with a lowercase t, to say, well, that's yours, but not mine. Well, that's right for you, but it's not right for me. You may end up on the losing side of that equation because there is only one name given to men under heaven by which they can be saved, the name Jesus Christ. That is Acts 4.12. Church, the restoration is possible because God is sending the son of David. God is sending Messiah. And get this, the messianic hope isn't just for Israel. The messianic hope is universal. It's for the entire world. The prophecies of the Messiah begin not with Amos, but with Eve, In Genesis chapter 3, and then they're echoed with Abraham, who came from the land of Ur, totally different place, and was known as a man of faith before Moses came. So before the covenant was established, before the law was given to his people, the word of God says, by faith you are justified. in the promise of a Savior who would provide for you what you could not provide for yourself, was all the way back there in Genesis 3 and Genesis 15. Not just for Israel, but for the entire world, because what is the word, the prophecy given from God himself to Abraham? The prophecy from God to Abraham, a childless man, was this. You will have more children than there are stars in the sky. Right? You will have more children than there are stars in the sky. And therefore, I am changing your name from Abram to Avraham, father of many nations. How good is that? So Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, those who have faith are the children of Abraham. So you go, well, we're not Jewish. Doesn't matter. I wasn't raised in a Jewish family. Doesn't matter. The Messiah came from Israel, but he is for the world. He's for you, and he's for me, and he's for everyone. And so he teaches to Nicodemus, God so loved the world. That's to say, not just Jews, but everybody. Everybody doesn't matter where you've come from not just ethnical uh, an ethnical, ethnic israel or, or 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 those who are born into israel but all of humanity that he gave his only son that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life john 3:16 that is restoration so we see first of all that the restoration begins with the booth of david being rebuilt in other words the Restoration is built, first of all, on Messiah. Second of all, I want you to note that restoration affects all of life. How much of life? All of life. Please note that God doesn't only promise redemption and restoration spiritually, but also physically. Look at the text again. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will overflow with it. Jumping down to verse 15. I will plant them in their land. They shall never be uprooted again. This idea is important for us. The harvests are going to be so plentiful that they're going to start planting again before they're done harvesting. There's so much richness and reward that God is going to bless his people with. Wine is going to flow from the mountains and hills, or it might be, you know, grape juice if you're into that kind of thing. Gardens will Thanks, okay. Gardens will be rich and produce wonderful fruit. It will be plentiful. And what's more, God says, I will plant you in the land that I have given you, and you will not be uprooted again. There's a permanence to this prophecy. And because there is a permanence to this prophecy, we can see that the prophecy is not yet fulfilled. Has Messiah come? We would say unquestionably yes. But has the redemption of God's people physically been met in completion? We would say no. I want you to look at this phrase in verse 11. The first three words are what in verse 11? In that day. Jumping down to verse 13. Behold, the days are coming. Just a reminder from a few weeks ago, that idea of day is not referring to a particular 24-hour day when God decides to execute his plan, and it all happens on that Monday. No, he's talking about a season, a period of time when he's going to execute his plan. And This is the case. The Word of God says we've got to be looking forward to it to be fulfilled, this is why one commentator, David Hubbard, calls this formula here the eschatological formula. I know some of you love eschatology. You're reading all your Daniel books, and you're reading all your Revelation books, and every time, every time Biden stands up and says, uh, we're going to push the vaccine, they go, oh, Mark of the Beast. <laughs> We see the end coming, and we ought to because we're Christians. If Peter and Paul and the apostles were ready for Jesus to come at any moment, then we should be too. But at the same time, nobody knows the hour or the time when the Son of Man comes, but only the Father in heaven. So we need to be prepared because this eschatological formula is telling us that God is coming, that God is going to execute his plan. This reminds us of something. God doesn't give us everything all at once. We'd like it all at once, but that's not how he works. Some theologians call it the tension between the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. So I can give you an example of that for for now. Am I a Christian? Yes, I already am. Am I saved? Yes, I already am. But I'm not yet glorified. But it is so emphatic in Romans chapter 8 that when Paul says, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. He says it all in past tense as if it's already done, even though it's not done. Because when God says, I will do, guess what, church? God does. He doesn't back off his word He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. When he says he will do, he does it. And what God has told me is if I believe in Jesus Christ, I will be saved, not only here, but then and there. Here's my point. Regardless of the fact that we live in a crooked and godless generation and the world is lost regardless of the fact that we may sometimes feel like the people of faith in Egypt. Remember that when God sent the ten plagues to Egypt, he protected, he provided, and he purified his people. Israel, the people of faith, were not affected by the plagues. Only the Egyptians were. So you might not be inheriting all the physical blessings that you wish you would be inheriting right now, but I can tell you that they are as good as fulfilled for you because when God starts something, he finishes it. Already? Not yet. Already? Not yet. One more time. Already? Not yet. Sometimes we're a little more not yet than already. Amen? Sometimes we go through, we lay down, and we go, Lord, not yet. And other days, we go, where's the water? I will walk on it. Today is the day I walk on water, right? Already, not yet, okay? We're in that tension. To close, let me say this. The book of Amos has been unrelenting in its word of judgment toward an ungodly and unrepentant people. But the end turns a corner to the praise of God, and we happily receive it it offers us a reminder that even in the end, amidst judgment, God can and will redeem those who place their faith in him and repent. The shepherd never forsakes his sheep. The redeemer never forsakes the redeemed. And the savior never forsakes the saved. For you and me, This message is a reminder not to be good so that God will love us, but that we can be good and godly because we are already loved by God.